EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olia Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 3rd. My colleague Toria Rainey and I talked to Professor Jacques Rupnik, Director of Research at the Center for International Studies at Sciences Po France. Jacques Rupnik is also a visiting professor at the College of Europe, Bruges, Belgium. Well, my, my main uh, interest in uh, the European Union uh, was related to um, my earlier engagement in the study of uh, Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans uh, and way back to something called the Soviet Union. Well, I started here at Harvard 40 years ago in a program that used to be called Soviet Studies. So I have a degree in a non-existent subject, which is Soviet Studies. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is uh, basically the post-89 development, the way the democratic changes in East Central Europe were connected to the process of the enlargement of the European Union. That was my major interest both ways how the enlargement of the European Union process transforms the countries of East Central Europe and vice versa, how their entry into the European Union is transforming uh, the EU and making it a quite a different animal. So that is really what uh, was the core of what I've been doing in the last 10 years or so. More recently, I have uh, published quite a bit, I mean, a book about the EU's neighbourhood policy, uh, the engagement of EU's neighborhoods, um, and it's called Geopolitics of Democratization, and basically discovering, the EU discovering, after the success story of uh, the transformative power of the European Union in Central Europe, discovering the limits uh, of that process. And basically now, with the two neighborhoods imploding simultaneously, I could say that particular fairy tale is over. Uh, We are now in a completely different ballgame. And that's what I'm studying here at Harvard. I have a project entitled Bad Neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, bad neighborhoods of the EU in both meaning of the word. Neighborhoods of the EU. We have war in the East, in Ukraine. We have war in the South with the Islamic State and the collapsing from Libya to Uh, to Syria, all the states are collapsing, millions of migrants moving into the EU. So this is a major, major destabilization process, not at all anticipated uh, by the EU. And uh, uh, so uh, that's uh, connected with the bad neighborhoods, in inverted commas, of our big European cities. The most famous now is Molenbeek. This is where, this is where the assassination plots in Paris uh, of uh, November 13 came. This is what happened now in Brussels. So we have now a connection of bad neighborhoods on the periphery of the EU with the bad neighborhoods in inverted commas of our cities, and there is now an interaction between the two. And this is what I'm studying: the, that the border between in and out is no longer clear and that there is a permanent interaction between inside and outside. 
So that's that's my main object of uh, study here. Sounds great. Uh, so where do you think the European Union is is heading to? What's in terms of its policies and governance? Well, at the moment, it must. It is facing several challenges simultaneously, and uh, I'm using challenges to be polite, not to use constantly crisis, but they are basically crises. Crisis on, as I said, on our periphery, but there are there is also an internal uh, uh, crisis, which is that of the eurozone, which is by no means over. It has been patched up last summer when Brexit was on the agenda, and Greece was single-handedly saved by France uh, uh, from expulsion from the eurozone. Uh, but we have now, after Brexit, we have Brexit. Uh, we have uh, basically the great, I think the most serious challenge is the loss of faith in the European project, inside the European Union. So this is a problem. If you look at the latest Eurobarometer, suddenly you see that in some of the core countries, some of the founding countries, that support is being eroded. And uh, you look at Italy, which used to be one of the most pro-European countries for reasons that had to do with the inner weakness of the Italian state, which was compensated by an exaggerated faith in what Europe can deliver. Well, um, we have seen in, in the space of what, you know, if you take 10 years ago, let's say two-thirds of Italian thought EU was a great thing, the best thing that happened to Italy. If you look at today, we are only at one-third. So this is quite a dramatic collapse of support. But we see it everywhere. You know, you look at the Dutch referendum that now took place. You can, you can, you can use a number of indices. Basically, loss of faith in the uh, European elites and uh, great doubts about the cohesion of the European Union, because as I say, we are facing several crises simultaneously. The fact that we face crises, I would say, is normal. We always had at least one. But one, you you can deal with if you're dealing with three or four simultaneously, and some are internal, like Eurozone, that's the core of the European Union, and some are external, like the Islamic State. Well, millions of migrants coming in, etc., these are major, major things, and what it's doing to European public opinion uh, uh, and trust in the EU is, 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 of course, very worrying. So, a question to clarify your last point. So, do you link the loss, loss in faith to this multiple crises the European Union is facing, or it has any other reason? Yeah, I directly link it to those crises. Of course, the economic crisis of 2008 imported from the US. This is what the financial crisis started here on Wall Street in September 2008 and then propagated to Europe and the Europeans are having great difficulties in overcoming that. So that maybe started the rot and then you had a number of the other crises combined with that. So that's clearly... Uh, yeah, that is a major um, turning point. And as I said, you know, facing one crisis, you um, you feel 
um, you can handle it. Indeed, there were theories. Jean Monnet himself, uh, the founding father, had this theory that crises uh, uh, can strengthen Europe, you know, because you, you put so much effort in finding a common solution that that forces you to work even closer together. So that's kind of the positive element in overcoming crises, you know. Uh, that's what brings you close together. That's what makes you deepen, in fact, European integration in overcoming crisis. Well, that he was making you dealing with one crisis. <laughs> if you're dealing with cracks inside and outside and threats, etc., and disaffection of public opinion, that, that it's very worrying because your capacity to act is undermined. And uh, suddenly we have divides inside. On the financial crisis, on the Eurozone crisis, we have a divide north-south. On the immigrant uh, uh, crisis, we have a divide east-west. Uh, so if you have a union that is divided east-west, north-south, the capacity of the European institutions to deliver uh, is reduced because the consensus is no longer there. You know, these institutions work fine because they are built on um, tacit consensus. I mean, or... Another way of putting it, the European Union is a machine, a political machine to deliver consensus. And it is in permanent modus operandi. It has to work. So this is what people understand. Why is it so slow? Why are they constantly... And then they have another meeting, then this. And then they, you know, my God, they have to stop the clock to deliver some compromise resolution at three in the morning. Why the hell are they doing... That, that's how it works. It's consensus, fabrication of consensus. That's what it is about. <laughs> that works if you have the trust of the different parties that this is what they want. If you introduce distrust, and this is what has been happening uh, in recent years, uh, among the uh, member states, and if you have undermined legitimacy but from the yeah, disaffected public opinion, which no longer sees the EU as delivering what it used to. I mean, used to deliver peace, used to deliver prosperity, used to be a guarantor of democracy. So it was a kind of, uh, not only was it, a, let's say, a noble project, a great idea that Europeans like to aspire to, but it it delivered. It delivered, uh, you know, 17 years, 70 years of peace on the continent, which is not nothing when you know European history. <laughs> it delivered prosperity on an unprecedented scale. Ask the Central Europeans, the greatest beneficiaries of it, greatest beneficiary. You look at where Poland or Slovakia, where they were, 15 years ago, in GDP per capita compared to EU average. And then you compare where they are 10, 15 years after, after their entry into the European Union. Beyond recognition, huge transfer, huge transfers. Only Poland is 100 billion from previous budget, 100 billion euro in the current budget. This is huge amounts of money. Country like Hungary, 3% of its GDP comes from EU transfers. So all these, these countries never had it so good. From transfers, do you think anybody will say thank you? No, they dislike the European Union. 
that every day they say something rude <laughs> to the address of European Union, which is unfairly intruding into their affairs, you know. So their policy is to, you know, in French you say la politique de la main tendue, you have a stretch hand, but it's not stretch hand to give a handshake, it's a stretch hand for the handout. So this is, this is now the way it is perceived in the West. And this is, this is why it is worrying that uh, we have had all these uh, achievements. These are tremendous achievements, the ones I mentioned, and each of them is being undermined. Peace, we are threatened on our neighbors. There is war. There is war going on on the doorstep. And the migrants coming in huge numbers, in millions now, in, onto the European continent, are So we have terrorist attacks in our cities. This is not a single occurrence. No, it is now problem of security. So peace is no longer sure because uh, uh, second uh, uh, prosperity, well, where is prosperity since the crisis of 2008? EU uh, is not associated with prosperity. Some countries doing better than others, sure. Nordic countries on the whole are doing better than southern countries. But that idea about EU equals prosperity is no longer there. Suddenly there is a darker side of globalization that is being uh, uh, perceived. And um, all this has contributed to undermine, let's say, the um, popular support for the project. And since we are democratic countries, since each of our governments have to be elected or re-elected, and since we have a referenda, we have possibility of referenda. This week we had the Dutch referendum. And, you know, before that uh, we had a, a Danish referendum about do you want more cooperation in, uh, among uh, security services in tracking terrorists? I don't know what. So we are living in democracy with our democratic process. So our governments cannot ignore the fallout from the EU's inability to deliver today what it used to deliver and which perhaps we took too easily for granted. I have a few questions coming, off, coming out of your answer. But first, why do you think that uh, Eastern European countries are continuously complaining about about the European policies and intervention? Because we've had, uh, in recent years, a turnaround. We have now, in Eastern Europe, a series of nationalist governments that came to power. It started in Hungary, uh, and uh, 2010, and it has been extended uh, now to Poland, Slovakia's recent elections are not particularly encouraging. You have left-wing nationalist Fico bringing into the government right-wing nationalists from the Slovak national parties. You look at, at Croatia, very worrying what's happening now. You, know, you have a minister of culture who is, a, for all practical purposes, a fascist. So we have had a political turnaround in the countries of East Central Europe. They were basically on a course for 20 years. They had the pro-European mainstream. Governments could change, but the European orientation would remain. So that was basically for 20 years, that was a consensus. The transformation, the reforms, the democratization, all this went hand in hand 
with European perspective. And it delivered very tangible results. As I say, this is for Eastern Europe, the most spectacular, the most spectacular catching up with the West that they ever had in their history. And I know something about their history. So I can tell you that they never had uh, uh, such a period of prosperity and such catching up with the West. Catching up with the West was an obsession of, of, of Eastern Europe. <laughs> uh, uh, Hungarian sociologist Elmer Hankish called it the neurosis of backwardness. Since 19th century, they were constantly worrying, you know, how are we looking? Should we catch up? How to catch up? That was always the, the obsession. Well, different things were tried in the, in the times of the empires, the Austrian Empire or the, the Russian uh, Empire, Russian. They, they were dominated by empires. That didn't work too well in terms of modernization. Uh, some people afterward were who thought communism was a way of modernizing these countries. Well, it worked perhaps for some, but on the whole, this was a resounding failure. So that second modernization was not a great success. This is like the third modernization. And it's, a, it's a resounding success. It's a spectacular transformation of these countries within less than a quarter of a century. So um, you have this paradox at the very moment when these countries are benefiting from this remarkable success. They had the swing of the pendulum to nationalist governments who put their national sovereignty at the center of their political project. So um, uh, they are, of course, um, trying to stay within the EU and get the benefits of it, but they're not putting anything positive into the EU. They are trying to protect themselves from EU intrusions in this and that and the other. I mean, the recent migration crisis was just, I think, the most obvious illustration of that, but there are many, many others. So there we are. We have this pendulum swinging. The liberal cycle is exhausted. The post-89 cycle is exhausted. And um, we are now not just in Eastern Europe, in the whole of Europe, we see the reassertion of uh, identity politics uh, and combined rejection of my immigrants and of EU, because the two things go together. <laughs> Who's responsible for the arrival of immigrants? Well, it's because we don't have borders. Why don't we have borders? Because we've abolished them in, <laughs> uh, 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 because of the EU. Oh, but the EU had told us we abolish national borders in order to have common external borders. This is what's supposed to be Schengen. Oh, yeah, but last summer we were told that the Schengen system is <laughs> unable to cope in Greece. And then Charles Merkel said, you're welcome. And there is no limit. Wir schaffen das. So, uh, if you tell people that not only they don't have their national borders, but indeed they don't have even external border of the EU. Well, then they say, where is the next stop where I can get off of this train? And this is basically what's happening. The Dutch referendum is just the latest illustration of that. 
they say no. <laughs> they say no. If and, and this is of course a big challenge, unless the EU is able to deliver promptly a revised, effective, credible version of an external border of the EU, which is what they're trying to do now, unless they do that, but promptly, this has to be done within weeks or months. This is not something for the next five years. No, 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 now. <laughs> if you don't deliver now the uh, political poison that has been unleashed in recent years, uh, we now see spreading uh, throughout Eastern Europe, including to countries that were considered as very uh, mild and uh, very welcoming to immigrants. Look at Sweden, uh, etc. Strong, which is the strongest party in, in, in Sweden today? Swedish Democrats, the equivalent of Marine Le Pen in Sweden. Uh, so um, this is not specific to one country. The only difference between East and Western Europe is that in Eastern Europe they are in government. Orban, Kaczynski, Fico, uh, or the Croatian nationalists, they are in government. In Western Europe, they are in opposition, but they are sufficiently strong nuisance value to put the brakes on the process of European integration. So this uh, might seem like doom and gloom and etc. And I can try, uh, you know, to turn things around and say, well, you know, maybe this is... Uh, just a difficult phase. We have to uh, regroup, find solution to the most pressing uh, uh, agenda. That is the immigration, the borders, and uh, because you can have two answers. Either you say this hasn't worked, the European border. Therefore, we want back the national borders. Okay, that, that's what the nationalists say. Or you can make the opposite case. You can say, well. This thing hasn't worked because it was not given proper tools to work. You know, when you discover that uh, Europeans spend, I think the European border regime has a budget uh, of something like 150 million euro. I mean, basically, it's something like 300 times less than what the US spends on monitoring its borders. <laughs> so, you know, we are nowhere. So if you want a credible border regime, you will have to first agree politically that this is what you need. You decide how you're going to do it, which means in some cases a Europeanized border patrol system, infringement of sovereignty, and then you will have to pay for it. You will have to give the means to do it. And when I say the U.S. spends 300 times more, well, then, you know, <laughs> you just do your sums and, and see what you will have to spend. Uh, unless you do that, I'd be very worried about the process of unraveling. I mean, the poison that I mentioned that is there can either be st stopped or, uh, let's say, contained or... Uh, maybe it will be a bad phase, or if you let it spread, uh, I don't want to see uh, the next uh, the next referendum in Britain or elsewhere because I, I fear I, I fear the result. <laughs> but I suppose one 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 has to try to uh, uh, give the uh, positive um, 
alternative that, that could come out of it. One, we've avoided the Grexit last summer, the Greek uh, being expelled. That was mainly France's uh, commitment to not letting a member of the Eurozone being thrown out. And uh, we'll have to see. But the Greek government has embarked on reforms that initially it was not elected to do. So maybe they belatedly are doing something about the core problem that was the internal problem of Greece uh, that, that exists. And of course, it's not just Greece. There are other member states that have to adjust and reform to make the euro a workable proposition. Um, maybe people will now understand that if we have a common currency, there are a number of other things we have to put together. You know, convergence of economic, budgetary, and fiscal policies. So, okay, that's one possibility. We emerge from the Eurozone crisis stronger that way. Border, I just mentioned the migrant crisis. Okay, we had a very harsh year last year. On, If we do nothing, the current year will be even more. The, the prediction of flow of migrants will be even more this year. So uh, if we start doing something, which seems to be the case, both in terms of European, uh, uh, let's say, a revised Schengen, Schengen II, new asylum system, Dublin II, uh, now this deal with, Gre with uh, Turkey uh, about... Uh, containing the flow of migrants in Turkey uh, rather than simply sending them to, uh, to, to Europe. So that, if we do that, we can show that Europe is capable of something. If Europe becomes identified only as a tool of globalization, it has dismantled the national boundaries and it has less left our countries open to just global markets, financial markets, economic markets, jobs are outsourced to China, India, or elsewhere. And then you tell European citizens, oh, but you know what? You know, it's a great thing because, you know, half a billion Asians have been lifted out of poverty thanks to globalization. Well, you know, that may cheer some people in a seminar at Harvard or in good universities in Europe, but that for the average citizen in Europe means absolutely nothing. They've lost their job, <laughs> and, 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 and that's a meager consolation for them to know that, you know, somebody in China is better off uh, or in India. So that, uh, uh, that's uh, one idea, Europe associated as a tool of globalization, and uh, Europe that used to be peace, now associated with instability and insecurity, for the reasons I mentioned. And with the immigrant issue, there is now Europe no longer being predictable and security in a kind of um, sense of, yeah, there was a family get-together. That was a small Europe. Now we have the wider Europe, open to everything, and Europe becomes identified with what one could call kind of civilizational insecurity. Suddenly people from a different country, from different continent, different religion, etc., coming en masse to Europe and asking uh, for certain special communal arrangements. 
So this is the suburbs, I was saying, the suburbs of Europe and the suburbs in Europe. <laughs> and uh, so, so unless we address these three things, that Europe can deliver security, it can intervene, let's say, in Syria or, I don't know, uh, somewhere. Uh, it has shown in the case of Ukraine that it can develop sanctions, for instance, against, uh, uh, against Russia because of the annexation of Crimea. Okay, some people here perhaps were not uh, too impressed, but, you know, if a single country in Europe had done such sanctions, nobody would have noticed. Would, would, Russia, would Russia have noticed sanctions by Poland or for, by, by Estonia? Uh, no. Sanctions by 28 countries of the EU, the biggest trading partner of Russia. Yeah, they do notice. And as the price of energy has collapsed and as the ruble has collapsed, well, suddenly it all becomes palatable. And maybe, you know, this is, uh, this is so. This is what Europe is good at, you know, that it can deliver things uh, like that. So, yeah, we will have to see if on the issues of security, on issues of uh, uh, migration, on issues of economy, above all, uh, EU can uh, deliver. And uh, if it has those responses, then I'm sure that, you know, the basic commitments that Europeans have to the European project uh, uh, will be strengthened and, and we, will, uh, we will recover. But, you know, the clock is ticking and we need political leadership to do that. How do you think the European cri the, the current crisis, as you talked about, going to affect um, the European integration in future? Let's say the, the, the impact they have now going to affect, going to shape the integration in five years period. And also how this crisis is, particularly the migration crisis and the rise of terrorist attacks within the European Union going to shape EU security policy. Okay, well, these are two, 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 different, things. two different things. So the, on the okay. first one, I would say a possible scenario would be, okay, uh, we don't know whether Greece can make it in the Eurozone, but it now seems likely that the British are on the way out in one way or another. So we may have to settle for a new architecture in Europe, one that would preserve the core and that would be the Eurozone. Country, as I said, countries that share a common currency, this is the utmost symbol of sovereignty. And it has implications. This is not just a symbol. It has implications for, you know, uh, economic policy, budgetary policy, fiscal policy. You're talking about fiscal policy? This is a core of the democratic process. No taxation without representation. This is what they say in this country. Well, if you're talking about fiscal convergence of Europeans, you are talking about some form of federalism. Okay, this is one direction to have a core Europe that is more integrated in a more federal direction. So this is the federalist dream, so to speak. Then you would have a second circle of countries uh, which are mainly interested in the market and nothing else. This is what the British are. They're interested in the... In, the, in free trade, and the Danes or Nordic countries, basically, they, they, they never were interested in the European project. As such, they were interested in, in, in uh, they are traders, and they are very good at it. And, and, and you know, the, the EU would be sort of the common market, back to, back to the initial name, the common market. 
That's how it was called <laughs> after the Rome Treaty in 1958. Okay, so this is this would be back to EU as a common market and the second circle. And then there would be a third circle of possible partners uh, in our neighborhoods. And this is very, of course, difficult to talk about it now because, as I said, most of our neighborhoods have imploded. So it's not easy to uh, speak in very glowing terms about our wonderful partnerships we're going to build. But one can have some imagination, you said, within five years, etc. Or one could imagine that, uh, uh, yeah, perhaps some uh, uh, modus vivendi will be established in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, that uh, uh, situations will stabilize, that they will start introducing some reforms. And yes, the referendum that has now taken place is a clear indication they are not on a course any association with the EU is not a course for joining the EU. This is not for membership. So that third circle is for partnerships. And Ukraine would be part, but Ukraine and others, uh, uh, Moldova, Georgia, etc. The countries that are willing to engage in that process would become close partners to the EU with access to the EU market, with uh, greater freedom of movement for their uh, citizens within uh, Europe, etc., etc. So uh, that would be, um, and similarly vis-à-vis -vis the South. You know, we we always talk about the dramatic situation uh, that has uh, occurred since the um, basically since the American invasion in Iraq uh, and uh, the spillover now in Syria and uh, Libya, etc. But there are countries where the situation is less dramatic, and where Europe can make a difference. Take Tunisia. It's the most positive outcome of the Arab Spring. In fact, it's the only real outcome of that Arab Spring. And some democratic changes are on the way. Let's imagine within five years, you know, this country, if it can consolidate its democratic changes, becomes a major partner for the EU. Morocco is evolving in a gradual reform mode big question mark about Algeria. Nobody knows what the succession crisis in Algeria will bring. But if we could have the Maghreb as a kind of fairly stable and possibly democratizing area, and I'm not saying democratic, you know, true democracy, uh, liberal, whatever. No. Democratizing, that there is an evolution process uh, uh, taking place, that you could imagine closer partnerships there. Uh, one could imagine sort of, uh, you know, three concentric circles from the European core, sort of kind of federal, the common market, the larger EU, and then the partners in the neighborhood, in the countries concerned of what is today the neighborhood policy. So that, that's, uh, that's, uh, that would be, I think, a reasonably plausible scenario. And one that would, uh, in a way, give new lease of life to the European project, because the big the big difficulty is that Europeans had disagreements about where should the project be heading, what's the finalité of the project. Well, that way you get beyond that. Those who are in the eurozone, nobody's forced to join it. But if you join it, well, this is what it takes, and that means getting closer into that.
you have the common market, much more flexible inside, much more open outside. And therefore, even the British don't have to leave because they could live with something like that. And then you have the third circle, which could be, you know, having uh, close ties and encourage changes on the immediate periphery in Ukraine, in Moldova, etc. I think this is, this is, uh, this is what uh, we could be doing. And you will have to, of course, this is the, then leading into your second question, <laughs> will have to rethink its um, relationship with some of the key actors on the periphery. Suddenly it discovered through the Ukrainian crisis <laughs> that EU's neighborhood is also Russia's neighborhood. You know, big discovery. Suddenly, suddenly you know, they woke up to, to that. So, uh, um, and they discovered at the same time that, yes, the European project is attractive for the Ukrainians, the Euromaidan movement, etc. But um, the only tools we, were, we have to promote our project are pacific tools. We, we, we rely on the power of attraction. You want to join the, uh, you want to get closer to the EU? Well, this is the kind of reforms that you may want to consider. Okay? We open our market, you change the governance. You introduce rule of law principles. You start fighting corruption, etc. Because if you want to be part of that market, you have to play with the same rules. Okay, so this is the EU approach. <laughs> but what if you are faced with a player which uses completely different tools? <laughs> you know, when you're confronted, when, when your soft power of the European Union is confronted with hard power of uh, 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 the uh, Russian state and the Russian military. Uh, and things like the annexation of Ukraine, I think, brought the message uh, home to even those who didn't want to look that uh, that way, suddenly, yeah, we are confronted with something different. And this is where we discover the, what we didn't want to think about, the uh, importance of geopolitics, you know, on the eastern as on the southern neighborhood. We suddenly discovered that, you know, our thinking that we open our markets, we diffuse, we encourage reforms, we promise mobility of citizens. Yeah, that sounds nice. That's fair weather policy. When things blow up in your face, you have to rethink. And you have to rethink because you have an assertive Russia on one hand, and you have security threats in the south, which eventually backfire on the streets of Paris, Brussels, or what have you. So um, suddenly Europe is forced to think in hard security terms. And that's a big challenge. Until now, the only countries that thought in security terms in Europe were France and Britain. Germany refused to think in those terms. Germany was a Pacific country and always had the argument, oh yeah, because of World War II, we no longer engage in any military activities. And that's why the Germans' military budget is 1%. Whereas NATO commitment is supposed to be 2%. And the only country in the EU which fulfilled that commitment are France and Britain. And now I, I hear that Poland and Estonia have also increased to reach the 2% limit because they're concerned about uh, uh, their eastern neighbor. 
So, um, yes, the Europeans will have to think about security. They will no longer be able to think that somebody will always fix it for them. They cannot be free riders any longer. The US, NATO, etc. are very important bond, but it is not uh, something that dispenses you from doing your homework. And in fact, that's how the Americans see it. What the Americans say to Europeans, you know, burden sharing, get your military in order, confront securities, you must be a partner. We want a European pillar in NATO. So it's not a question of are you for NATO or no, no. this is all within NATO. But now the Americans are saying, you know, we have other things on our plate. Pivot to Asia, uh, what have you. Uh, and the general mood, we can see it in the uh, election campaign here, is against its kind of withdrawal. You can see it with, with Trump or with Bernie Sanders. Both are from withdrawal from overextension abroad. So this is a wake-up call for Europeans. Yeah, so thinking about the idea of having the three co-centric circles, um, what I gather is that a lot of that comes down to the governance and the policy. So how would you assess the citizens' participation in that forward thinking and making sure that they are doing their homework and doing their research? What do you think the average citizen of a European country would have to do to ensure that kind of future? Well, um, the problem is the citizens... Uh, have long been, uh, I wouldn't say ignored, or uh, rather, uh, because that was never the case, they were sort of taken for granted. They were, uh, there was an assumption, you know, the EU was kind of elite project, and that it was an assumption that people supported it. And on the whole, that was true. People supported it. Uh, uh, they supported governments that followed pro-European policies for the reasons I mentioned, because EU delivered peace, prosperity, democracy, etc. Once it's no longer delivering all these things, well, you have, you have, you have problems. So you may need uh, two things. One is um, create conditions of a, uh, greater democratic accountability in that process, in the European integration process, uh, make people aware, for instance, of the role of the European Parliament. I mean, here we have it. We have a direct elections to the European Parliament. We have actually uh, quite a clear indication that if, let's say, the right wins, the right-wing parties win, there will be a right-wing president of the Commission. If the left wins, we will have, let's say, a social democratic president of the Commission. This is, this is a positive development. Suddenly, the European politics is not opaque, uh, behind-the-scenes dealing. No, it's quite clear. You have uh, European elections, different parties compete. Yes, some coalitions will form after, but on the whole, you can influence uh, 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 European policies that way. So there is an enhanced role for the European Parliament. And I would say there is the enhanced necessity of an enhanced role for, a, for civil society. Because, because uh, one thing is, you know, public opinion polls and we have Eurostat and we, they deliver us with, with these. Okay, that's one thing, public opinion polls. 
That's not what I have in mind. I, I have in mind, you know, engagement of citizens. And uh, that can take many, many forms. But the important thing about the, uh, that engagement, that it is not just nation-based, that it is a trans-European movement. If you're dealing with something like migration, let's say, well, you can rely, of course, on, on what uh, your nation-state will do, government policy. You can rely on what the EU will decide and what funds will be allocated, or I don't know what. But then, of course, we have seen throughout this, uh, since last summer particularly, enormous activity of civil society. In Italy, on Lampedusa Island, you know, full of associations, uh, 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 some are Christian, some are humanitarian. I mean, you have all sorts of actors that have suddenly uh, become involved. In the Balkans, since these, uh, this is the other route from, uh, from Syria via Turkey that come through Greece to the Balkans, again, we have seen, you know, a number of civil society actors engage. And that, I think, will be the case uh, uh, everywhere if we want uh, the European agenda not to be confiscated by some kind of nationalist demagogues who brag, who, who basically do fear-mongering, you know, then, then uh, civil society will be a very powerful opponent to that. So it's not enough for government officials to, to, to say this or that and the other. So that 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 is my... Um, that is my hope, that some kind of uh, European civil society and possibly a European dialogue uh, among intellectuals, public opinion, etc. You know, great, one of the greatest achievements of the European Union is the program of student exchange uh, that you may be familiar, Erasmus. So this is, this, this is like the the best thing the EU ever did for the young generation, you're a student, you go study for a semester in another country, you know, you're studying in Germany, you come for a semester in France, you're a French student, you go for a semester to Holland or something like that. This is a fantastic experience. There is, and now studies have been done about that Erasmus generation. Yeah, there's a whole group of people for the last 15 years or 20 years, I don't know how long this 20 years this program has been going on. There's a there's an Erasmus generation. There are now kids that are born <laughs> out of the Erasmus program, you know, and they are, you know, so this is a truly European uh, adventure, very successful. Okay, confined to the students and universities, but basically what you need is to do this thing on first, on an intellectual level, you need to have a debate about substance. Where is Europe heading? What are we, what are European values? What are European principles? Uh, what is it to be Europeans? Uh, 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 yeah, that, that kind of debate that we never had. We know people took it for granted. Oh, yeah, Europe, yeah, it's member states of the EU. Uh, you, you don't question it. Well, when you are in dire straits, you have to question it. You, so what does the immigration wave do to you? Forces an exercise in self-definition. Yes, there is an obligation to rescue somebody who is drowning. But yes, there is also the right or even the obligation to tell them who we are. This is, these are our societies, and this is what we are. And Europeans have to 
discuss among themselves. What is it then that unites us and what is it that is non-negotiable in our policies of welcoming immigrants? We separate religion and politics. This is not the case in the countries where you come from. We believe in the equality of men and women. This is not the case in your countries. We reject anti-Semitism as something unacceptable. You make this equation of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, because you're opposed to Israel, you hate the Jews. Well, not, not acceptable in our countries. And I could go on, you know, through the list. Uh, freedom of expression. We believe in freedom of expression. You don't like what I say? You don't like the caricatures uh, that uh, they published? Well, take it to court. You can take it to court. We believe that if you have a difference, you settle it in court. You don't settle it by throwing bombs. Okay, and I could go on like that. Suddenly, Europeans have to think on their feet and define who they are. But these are the principles we stand for. And as soon as you start doing that, well, you create a trans-European discussion. You suddenly give new substance the European integration process. And if that process takes place, if it is successful, well, then I have you know, great belief that uh, Europe can catch a second or third breath or whatever. I don't know how many times we've already been catching new <laughs> breath, you know, but this time it's serious. And if we do that, and civil society will be crucial in that, then we have created something new. We have created a European public space. And therefore, we will not have just the market, the institutions, but we will also have the public space. And uh, if that were the case, then we could say that this crisis overcome has delivered something positive, something new. Um, but that is more of a program forward-looking. Let's see if it happens. podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 